Tonight is on shame and blame. Shame and blame. So here we go. Um, the brain is responsible, obviously, for keeping us alive, surviving, and it does that in a number of ways. Your midbrain is primarily responsible for the impulses that help you survive immediately, help you uh, detect and escape and flee from threats, help you to fight off enemies that you can, help you locate and attain shelter and food and places to sleep safely. So uh, you have at your disposal the sympathetic nervous system, the brain stem, cortisol, adrenaline, a whole host of systems to help you survive and, of course, other systems to help you breathe, regulate, homeostatically. Okay, we'll just toss that all aside. Uh, that's just the basics of staying alive. Uh, then there's uh, a part of the brain largely situated in the right hemisphere that allows you to sustain secure relationships with other people. What the Buddha called mita, the importance of having reliable friends, people that you can trust, people that you know will be there to create a secure base where you can share and disclose the stresses in your life. And the Buddha has many wonderful, beautiful suttas where he uh, describes a friend as being someone that you can assume will be there, someone who will uh, help soothe you when you've been uh, experienced woundings in the world you can count on who will not judge you who will not people who will not abandon you when you're down and out this realm is also called the chitta it's the realm largely of the brains the circuits of the brain's right hemisphere which are largely unconscious and they work they're an entire separate personality. Your brain has two completely separate personalities always working, one of which you're conscious of and aware of, and one of which is unconsciously behind the scenes, uh, essentially looking over every situation in your life and giving you impulses and emotions that are there to steer you to make secure reliable connections because human beings are social beings we survive our great advantage as a species is that we connect and we sustain our connections through um, monitoring our friendships checking on how securely connected we are and our emotions steer us to connect with each other in a safe way when We've been, we've lost somebody that we depend on. We may experience sadness or grief. When we experience the excitement of meeting a new friend, we experience joy. When we experience um, a time where we act against the best interest of a group, we might feel remorse. And then finally, the 
other way that we survive is we have what Michael Gazaniga calls the interpreter, the inner chatter in your mind that turns every single experience of your life into a story that you can understand. Because if you didn't have the interpreter, your experience would be completely overwhelming and a barrage of sights and sounds and feelings and emotions and sensations and events that would overwhelm you and flood you, a little bit like a movie that was just constantly showing you a barrage of images and sounds that didn't cohere to any narrative simple story. So the left hemisphere of your brain, while the right is keeping track of how securely connected you are to other people, your left hemisphere is turning all of your experience into a story, an easy-to-grasp narrative that essentially creates the appearance of a coherent agent, a you, a self, that's guiding your actions. As neuroscience shows, and the Buddha noted 2,500 years ago, it's actually a great feat of illusion. As the Buddha noted, the decisions we make come very late in the game after most of our actions have already taken place. We add on top of it the story that makes it look like very often we're in control. But already by that point, the feelings and the impulses have already occurred. We're a little bit like one scientist says, a monkey riding on the back of an elephant. The elephant is the unconscious mind who's actually creating our actions, creating our impulses, and the monkey just sits there telling a story, believing that it's guiding the elephant and making the choices. We're very good at that. We come up with stories in an instant after we find ourselves saying the horrible thing during a fight. We come up with a justification of why we chose to say it. After we storm out during an argument, we come up with a rationale why we stormed out. We are, in essence, very often acting and then narrating. The role of the interpreter is not only to make sense so that we can learn in some way from experience and feel in control. If we didn't have an interpreter, w people who don't have that faculty immediately become far more depressed and overwhelmed because they become bombarded and saturated with experience and they don't have any feeling that they can make sense of their world. So your interpreter is what gives you the confidence to think that you can change your life accomplish goals, and uh, achieve things. Another role of the interpreter, the inner chatter, the voice that makes sense, that narrates your life, is it, it distracts you from all the emotional pains and woundings and unpleasant memories that are constantly ebbing gnawing just beneath the level of awareness all of the sadnesses, the disappointments, the frustrations. Its role, the interpreter, is to pull you up into the thinking mind and distract you from all the unpleasant emotions that remind you of the abandonments and the rejections and the shamings and every difficult experience of dukkha 
that you've ever had. The Buddha noted that we talk of floats as, an, as a distraction on top of the felt experience of suffering. So, tonight's topic is on shame. And what role does it play, given everything I've told you about, what keeps it going, and what gives birth to the shame and blame spiral. In order to discuss shame, I have to differentiate it from guilt, because people often use the two interchangeably, and in fact, they're very different. Guilt, what the Buddha referred to as otapa, guilt is the feeling of remorse after we act in a way that causes harm to someone. It's the regret over an action. And guilt is largely considered to be a positive psychological emotion. Guilt is not a thought. It's not a part of the left hemisphere. It's not an interpreter production. It's a production of the emotional mind. It follows after we act in a way that causes harm. And it requires that we're capable of empathy. In order to feel guilt, we have to care about someone else. And guilt often inspires us to make amends or to apologize. So guilt, otapa, actually has the possibility of forging and reconnecting us with other people. The Buddha talked about otapa as one of the key paramitas and the key practices of the advanced practitioner. Shame is very different. Shame is a series of thoughts and feelings and beliefs which essentially establish a view that there's something wrong with ourselves, something wrong with me. It's not about our actions, which would make it guilt. It's just about the general sense that my identity, who I am, is somehow lacking, not matching up, not good enough, I am falling short of other people. So guilt is about actions, shame is about one's sense of self, one's personality. The Buddha said that shame is only useful when it's samwega, which is the sense that we have somehow not attained our spiritual we've not become the spiritual beings that we could be. So the Buddha does hold that sometimes shame can have some values. But most of the time when it's um, harayati, laja, or other forms of shame, the Buddha noted, they are all variations of just personality fixation that keep us suffering. In short, shame is largely a story and a feeling that says there's something wrong with me. Now, why do we have that? Why do so many of us believe that there's something wrong with our self, our identity that needs to be changed, that needs to be addressed? The psychological understanding is that shame is the interpretive mind's attempt to distract us from the woundings we experience with other people, with adults, with our parents, the woundings during premature sexual experiences that happen too young in life, the woundings of a parent that rejects us, all of these emotional woundings from other people, other kids, 
are masked by a story that I'm no good. So rather than feeling the pain of abandonment and rejection, a parent that says, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you as good as your sister? Why aren't you achieving more? The kids that make fun of us, we mask all of these wounds with a sense of shame. There's something wrong with me. So it's a story that masks a feeling. And even though it's an unpleasant story that creates even more unpleasant feelings and thus a feedback loop of misery, we prefer to be even in the most negative thought than we would ever want to be in the most negative feeling in the body. We feel safer in the mind in stories about how crappy we are than we feel with our woundings and our sadness in the body. It's for the same reason that people like to worry. Worry is a distraction from fear. Nobody likes to feel fear in the body. It's contracted, it's tight, it's vulnerable, it makes us feel small. So we prefer to worry. Worry distracts us from the feeling of fear. It's a miserable experience as well, but human beings, like Winnicott said, prefer to be up in their minds. We prefer stories over feelings. So shame, as a distraction from our pain, our early traumatic memories, leads to all kinds of antisocial behaviors, shutting down in groups of friends, having the, lacking the ability to establish boundaries with people who are aggressive and walk all over us. It leads to avoidance coping and isolation, where rather than going into situations where we could learn to speak up, state our needs, be confident, we, because of the feelings and the stories of shame, we tend to withdraw and isolate. Shame Shame is very painful to, by its very nature, to disclose to other people because the story of shame is, I'm not good enough. I suck. And that's a very painful thing to acknowledge to others. And yet, human beings need other people to regulate our feelings and our stories. So the practice of isolating and avoiding and shutting down only makes shame that much more powerful and leaves us without the most important tool disclosing it that would help alleviate it. When shame becomes the story that distracts us from the feeling of interpersonal pain, when shame becomes so strong, because we don't believe other people are safe to share and talk about our shame, what we'll do instead is seek addictive substances, eating disorders, narcissistic attention seeking, telling people to look at all our achievements so that we can distract ourselves and them from acknowledging the stories of shame. But perhaps the most prevalent way that people try to mitigate the pain that, and the distress that shame creates is through blame. So blame masks shame, which masks pain. They all rhyme. 
<laughs> we have pain. The pain is masked by shame. The shame becomes so unpleasant. We start blaming. It's an easy thing to remember. Blame is either directed inwardly as self-blame or outwardly as blaming other people, projecting everything we don't like about ourselves onto other people. Self-blame, you might ask, what's the difference between self-blame and shame? Shame is the story that everything about me is wrong, lesser than, I don't deserve to live, I'm no good, I don't live up to other people's standards. Self-blame, to distract us from that, tells a story, oh, if only I had graduated from college, if only I hadn't chosen to be uh, you know, a uh, graphic designer instead had chosen this field. If only I was better looking. Blame points to one single attribute, fixates on it, and tells us that all of our shame and all of our pain and all of our guilt would go away if that one little thing about us was alleviated. So what we have is the feelings of Emotional pain masked by feelings of shame, which is masked by self-blame or blaming others. And it creates a vicious circle because no matter how much we blame, we're still stuck with the same core woundings, the same feelings of lack of worth. And all of it doesn't end up alleviating anything. The victimization views that we fall into the more we blame other people provide an endless justification for us to act unskillfully, which only isolates us further from other people. The linkage of shame and blame are as old as literature and mythology itself. The Buddha was constantly... Uh, targeted by his cousin Devadatta, who was ashamed of his own status in life and thus constantly blamed the Buddha for his unhappiness and, and on several occasions tried to kill the Buddha. In the Old Testament, there's a story of Cain and Abel. Cain blamed Abel for getting God's good gracious, apparently, I don't know anything about the Bible, this is what I know about it, uh, but apparently Cain, feeling ashamed of his gift to God, which was rejected or was shunned by God. Um, interestingly enough, Cain was a farmer, and he offered veg vegetables to God, who was like, nah, I don't want no vegetables. In the story... Abel was a shepherd. He offers one of his sheep. He kills something, and God's like, oh, yummy. <laughs> so Cain, the farmer, the vegan probably, right, he gets all angry, and he says, fuck off, Abel. You're dead to me. I don't know what this has to do with anything. This is Josh's alternative biblical history. <laughs> Come listen to Josh completely warp and distort the Bible. So, um, how do we alleviate shame and the blame 
that it activates? Well, there's a couple of different ways. One of the traditional Buddhist ways is what's called yatha bhuta nana dasana, which means that all of the self-centered stories that we live in as a way to not feel pain, the Buddha believed would eventually evaporate if we learn to perceive um, and see the distortions of the way that we normally think in our default settings. In other words, we, shame is a cognitive distortion. And so the first tool I'm going to teach you is a modern tool, before I go into some of the earlier Buddhist ones. This is called trial-based cognitive therapy. It's a new practice. And uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to sit. And rather than just tell you the tools, I'm going to guide you fewer through uh, some of them so that you can have the experience. Now, closing the eyes for a moment, and bring to mind any of the stories that you generally criticize yourself with the feelings and stories, I'm not good enough, I haven't achieved enough, I should have accomplished more, I should be whatever. And just see if you can, we're going to call this the prosecutor. This is going to be the prosecutor of why you suck. And just think of two or three reasons that you generally use to beat yourself up. Just hold those two or three in mind. Really know them. And then let them go. Now I'd like to bring in your defense attorney. He's as high paid as the prosecutor. He's good at what he does. He comes from the law firm of Cornfield and Goldstein and Salisbury. <laughs> and I want this defense attorney to list as many reasons why you are wonderful as you are that you don't need to change a thing.
just list in your mind as many reasons that you are okay exactly as you are. Any examples, anything that comes to mind. If you can't, just ask what would somebody who loves you say? Okay, and when you're done, you can open up your eyes. So I'm going to now perform a magic trick. While I can't read into, reach into your mind and discern what the reasons were, when I do this in one-on-one -on -one mentoring and when I did this at our last retreat, Again and again and again, the results are always the same. The reasons that you came up with that you're no good, that you should be better, that you should change, are always based on shoulds or speculations or arbitrary values that you've decided are true but you actually have no way of proving. I should earn more. I should be doing this, I should be more helpful, I should. They're always based on shoulds. Shoulds meaning that there's some perfect version of you out there that you're somehow falling short of. Now, if I asked you to look at the examples of why you didn't need to change and why you're perfect, I guarantee you that your actions, will, your choices will not be based on shoulds, but on actual facts about your life. What I find again and again and again, and I have people do this for much longer, I have them spend 10 minutes literally writing down 10 reasons why they deserve to die, and then 10 <laughs> reasons why they're absolutely fine. And each time we look through the list without giving them any pre-warning, the reasons there's something wrong with me are always based on speculation and shoulds and arbitrary judgments that have nothing to do with reality. But the examples of why we deserve happiness are always based on the actual facts of our lives. I get up, I try to help people, I call my sister, I show up for my friend when she's down, I, I care and take care of my animals, whatever. They're always based on actualities. When we begin to see this, we realize that a lot of shame is kept together simply by completely arbitrary, completely uh, 
fantasized illusions about the way we believe people should be but are not actually really in life. And most of the time, if we investigate those shoulds that we use to uh, diminish ourselves, we find that we would never comfortably in any way use those same verdicts on our friends or people we love. If our friends were in any way struggling, we would do the defense attorney. We would never, ever do the prosecutor with a friend. Even primarily with people we don't know that well. If we saw somebody randomly hurting, randomly suffering, we would never play the prosecutor. We would always intuitively play the defense attorney. But in life, in our heads, we always naturally go into the prosecutor mode, which is arbitrary and largely a fallacy. But that's not the only way we can begin to address shame. Another way is through insight practice. So what I'd like you to do is close your eyes again. And bring to mind something that you generally accuse yourself of, a criticism you have, not for a specific action, but just a general sense that you're falling short, not matching up. more outgoing, I should exercise and be healthy all the time, I should volunteer always, I should be I should be smarter, I should be more confident, I should be funnier. And just hold that thought, I should be this, I should be that. I'm not doing enough. And then, while you keep that phrase going, bring your awareness into your body and just see if you can find where the underlying Vedana, the tightness in the body is while you judge yourself. In my case, it's in a tight stomach. Some people feel it in a tightness in the throat. 
Some people feel their shoulders are contracted. Some people feel a tightness in the muscles of the eyes. But if you practice this enough when you're actually in a spiral of shame, you'll find that you can actually pinpoint the physical state beneath. And here's a trick. If you relax the body, you relax the breath, you soften the belly, you release the shoulders, you will find that it's impossible to maintain the story of shame. Shame requires your body being tight and contracted. And the moment you soften and relax and take care of your body, the shame no longer becomes sustainable. When you're ready, you can open your eyes. And so for our final tool, because in Buddhism we do everything in threes, the first tool was trial-based cognitive therapy. The second tool was a basic insight practice, noticing the first foundation and second foundation beneath shame. The third is going to be based on Uniso Manasikara, which is uncovering the hidden function or role that shame plays. Now, I've already told you what it is. It's concealing some form of pain. But when we practice for ourselves, we can begin to actually take advantage of when we connect with the concealed emotions beneath shame, we can actually heal shame because once we feel what's beneath it, there's no longer any need for the masking story to be there. You can actually be with the feelings that you felt too terrified or too timid to hold. So let's practice this. For the last time, this is the hardest one. So Closing the eyes and visualize an experience most recently where you started to feel some sense of shame. Maybe you got in an 
argument with some friends or you felt left out and then there was a story that picked up that I'm not good enough. I'm not. Nobody cares about me. Maybe there's someone that you wanted to befriend, but they're often unavailable. And there's a sense of wounding. Just think of an experience where you started to feel and experience the stories of shame. Visualize the experience. And now here's the important part. If you could remove your capability of experiencing or creating shame, a story that you're not good enough, what would you feel instead? Now the ego, interpretive mind, wants to say, it would be great. I wouldn't feel bad. Everything would be okay. I would never feel shame. I'd never feel anything wrong with me. But if you really seek what's really down there, what you really don't want to feel, it'll be some form of sadness, discomfort, some form of not being cared, not being loved, not receiving kindness. Somewhere there'll be a rejection. Somewhere there'll be a feeling of not being loved. And if you can connect with that and really nurture it, once again, you'll find that the impetus to conceal it with shame will begin to diminish. The emotional mind doesn't really understand a lot of language. So trying to nurture through it's okay we're gonna get him now we're going to <laughs> song and dance you know it's okay nothing but blue skies <laughs> doesn't really i don't know what it, where that came from that was just absurd uh uh, uh now, it doesn't really, the emotional mind doesn't, has very limited language faculties, but what it does respond to is images very well. The emotional mind is actually far more adept at processing. So, sustaining an image of a time where you took care of yourself, sustaining the image of somebody that you know, 
provides care, sustaining the image of all the facts of your life that show you that you're not as going to be wounded again the way you were in the past. So, for instance, if we go through a traumatic breakup with someone we feel deeply, deeply rejected, then shame arises to protect us from that feeling of rejection. If we return to the pain of, of being rejected, of going through uh, uh, a breakup with somebody that we really felt was important to us, then what we can do is hold images in our mind of all the people that care about us, all the times in our, all the things in our life that are still available to us, everything in our life that's still enriching, and just showing that frightened, wounded part, showing it, everything that's available to us. So it's imagistic, not words.